Now, I want you to get your Bibles, if you would, and turn to John chapter 4. We begin a brand new series this morning called The Generosity Experiment. And if you've been following uh, the promotion of this series that we've been doing over the last few weeks, you'll know, and you know, that this is uh, really much more than a teaching series. Um, we're going to be doing, over the next few weeks, we're going to be taking part together in an experiment. Now, I know that the word experiment brings uh, a lot of different ideas. For me, it brings back really bad memories of chemistry in high school. Um, but we're not going to be doing any kind of chemistry lab stuff. Even though it would be really fun to explode things up here on stage, we're not going to do that. We're not going to be poking and prodding any of you like guinea pigs. Um, we're just going to be uh, together doing an experiment um, that involves generosity. Now, I want to I give you uh, a definition of the word experiment, and you can see it on the screen hopefully. It says this, it's an, a scientific procedure undertaken to make a discovery. And that's what we want to do, is we want to discover something together. We want to test a hypothesis, or we de- want to demonstrate a known fact. And we believe here at Westridge that it is a known fact that if we as a church could be generous together, all come together, that we could do much, much more in the community uh, in regards to to generosity. We can make a bigger impact. And so to demonstrate this, we've come up with just a real simple experiment. We want to ask everyone today and, and uh, next Sunday to bring a dollar. And at the end of this service, we're going to be uh, asking everyone from the youngest to the oldest to put a dollar um, in, in a bucket. And then we're going to take all those dollars, we're going to combine them together, and 100% of everything that comes in is going to be used to bless a family or an individual in our community that's in need. And so... No chemistry labs, no beakers, no lab coats, no potential explosions, just a lot of us bringing money together uh, to help someone in need, and then we're going to show how we together, when we decide to work together, how we, we can make a huge impact in our community. And so you're not going to want to miss the next few weeks, because each week we're going to show on the screen what we were able to do together. And um, this week... We've already got something in mind, and uh, as soon as we're able to collect what we gather today, we're going to bless that person and then show you next Sunday how that all works out. And I'm confident as you hear the, hear the stories, as you see the stories, that, um, that the command to be generous is going to just co- gonna come alive in your life. Because, and, and you're going to see as you leave today, as you give your dollar bills at the door, that um, God is able to really do a whole lot when we work together. So with that being said, I want you to know that this series is not just about money, all right? Um, it's about, and not just this morning, but it's in, as next week, it's about challenging you to be generous in every area of your life. And here's my hope, all right? My hope and prayer is that through this series that we will allow God to move us forward, can, to continue moving us forward as a church, to become a church that stuns, all right? Stuns our community and the world with generosity. I want to be a people in our community all right? And all over the world, that when, when people hear the name Westridge Church, that immediately they just think of the word generosity. I want people to, to, when they encounter us, to think to themselves, those are the most generous people that I have ever met in my life. All right? But for that to happen, we have to do more than just show up on Sunday morning and simply just talk about the importance of being generous. If that's all we ever do is just talk about it and hear about it and learn about it, but we don't ever back it up with, with actions, and then our words really don't mean a whole lot, do they? So again, my hope and my prayer is that this series will motivate all of you to take your next step in your relationship with Jesus, Jesus Christ, to make some sacrifices in your daily lives, and to truly start living out this model of generosity that we're going to see in the life of Jesus this morning, 
and the life that Christ has called all of us to live here on this earth. Now, before we dig into this passage, John chapter 4, I want to take some time and I want to build a case for generosity so that we have a foundation to really build on. Because if you're, if you're going to, um, and, and let me do this as well. Let me give you, uh, if I could, a definition of generosity that we're going to be using. Generosity, and this is from Ken Blanchard uh, from his book, The Generosity Factor. Generosity is not about doing the minimum. It's every day looking for opportunities to do the unexpected. All right, again, generosity is not about doing the minimum. It's every day looking for opportunities to do the unexpected. Now, I want you to think about this with me. Who has ever been inspired in this world by a person who is sold out and committed to doing the bare minimum? I mean, who, who in this room has ever been just, I mean, you've been inspired and challenged and really motivated by just someone who just gives their life just to just barely getting by? I mean, there's not one of us in this room that, that could say that. Doing the absolute minimum for others doesn't inspire anyone. Now, imagine for a moment... If God were to supernaturally give you the ability to be present at your own funeral, I don't know if you've ever thought about that or not, but what, wouldn't it, just, I'd love to hear what people say about me after I'm gone. And some of you are going, no, I don't want to hear that at all, all right? But, but you know, just think about what, if, if what, would, what would be said about you at your own funeral, all right? Would it be said about you that you did just enough to get by? I mean, think about, you know, maybe just take a guy named Joe. If your name's Joe, I apologize for using the name Joe, but just pick the name. Yeah, I liked old Joe over there. When it came to giving his time, he gave the bare minimum. Joe was a talented guy. Man, he had all gifts and all these abilities that God had blessed him with, but he never reached his potential. When it really came to giving, Joe just gave the bare minimum. I mean, how many of us really would like to be like old Joe? Not one of us in this room. But wouldn't it be incredible if we could all say, and if it could be said about us one day, that we were known for being generous. That we overwhelmed people with our investment of our time and our gifts and our resources. I mean, the truth is, as followers of Jesus Christ, the Bible calls us to live lives that are characterized by giving and by investing way more than just the bare minimum. The Bible actually calls us to live lives that are characterized by bold, fearless, audacious generosity. So where do we start? Where do we start? Well, if we're going to get past bare minimum type living and live lives of generosity, then we have to have this foundation to build on. And our foundation um, really starts here. All right? It starts with an understanding that our God is a generous God. And I know that sounds simple to many of you, but we need, that's the foundation that we have to build on. All right? Our God is a generous God. And throughout scriptures, we're constantly reminded over and over again that we worship a very, very generous God. We've sung about him this morning, all right? We've, we've, just, we've talked about what God has done for us and what he gave to us. And I don't know what kind of thoughts maybe you had as you walked through the door about God, but I want you to know that the Bible teaches us that our God is characterized by generosity. And guess where, we, where do we find the ultimate proof of that truth? We find it in the life of Jesus Christ. Right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now, in this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we, just, we, we see just how generous our God truly is. Jesus, who was God in the flesh, the Bible says he was rich. All right? He had a throne in heaven, he had angels and eternal being 
beings that were worshiping him 24-7, all right, around a throne, and he left all of it. He put it all aside so that he could become poor. He was born in a manger to a teenage mom. His dad was a carpenter. I mean, through many seasons of his life, especially during his ministry life, he was homeless. And 2 Corinthians says he left his riches in heaven and he became poor for our sake. Now, why would he do that? Well, 2 Corinthians 8 says, so that we might become rich. Now, what in the world is the Bible talking about here? Well, if you look in Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us that we have a huge debt that we owe God because of our sin. It's a debt that we could never repay to him, even if we spent the rest of eternity trying to repay it. And because of that, the Bible says that every one of us in this room deserves death. We deserve to die stuck in our sin with no other option but eternity in hell. Now, I, I know to, to most people, that, that sounds very extreme. It sounds cruel. That doesn't sound generous at all. Matter of fact, to a lot of people, it sounds contradictory to everything else that we know about God. However, because God the Father is a giver, and because he's so generous, he sent his son Jesus to earth to provide a solution to the mess that we have found ourselves to be in. Jesus set aside his seat in heaven. He came to earth. He lived a, lived a perfect life, and then he died on a cross to pay off the sin debt that we could never pay. Jesus paid the price we couldn't pay. He took the punishment that we deserved when he took our place on the cross. And then three days later, we know he came up out of the grave through the power of the Holy Spirit to show the world that he had defeated sin and death once and for all. Now, because God generously offered his son Jesus to pay for our sins, he now generously offers eternal life to anyone who would place their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ alone to be their personal Savior. That's the gospel message. And as we've just heard, Jesus did all of this so that we could become rich. In other words, he did it so that we could have a relationship with Jesus Christ, with God the Father, so that we could spend all of our eternity in his presence, experiencing all of his loves, all of his love, and all of his blessings perfectly and completely. Now, I think all of us can agree, based upon what I just said, that our God is a generous God. He is known, he is, he's a giver. God so loved the world that he gave. All right? And I believe that we can all agree that God defined generosity when he did the unexpected. All right? He stunned the world by, with his generosity by sending Jesus into the world to be our Savior, by proving that God is generous beyond our understanding. Now, in the book of James, we've also, we're given this further picture of the generosity of God. James chapter 1 verse 17 says this, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James tells us that every good thing we enjoy in life, including life itself, is a gift from God. The time that you've been given here on this earth is a gift from God. All of our talents, all of our abilities, every, all of that has been given to us as a gift from God. Our relationships, our friendships, our relatives, whether you like it or not, are gifts from God. All of the money and stuff that you have been, that you've accumulated, all right? They're all gifts from God. According to the Bible, God gives us all of these things, all of these gifts, and the responsibility of managing them so that we can bless other people for the ultimate purpose of pointing those same people back to Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think about Ephesians 5.1 for a moment. Because Ephesians 5.1, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, imitate God. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because 
you are his dear children. Now in this verse, Paul instructs us as God's children to imitate God in everything we do. We are mirrors. We are to mirror or we are to reflect his character to the world around us. That means that we are to be reflectors of God's generous nature. It means that we are to give generously to others of our time and of our abilities and our talents and, our, and, and of our resources because we know and we also believe that God has been generous to us. So, I want you to understand that when we talk about giving generously of your money to the mission and vision of Westridge Church, it, it's more than just trying to keep the lights on in this building. It's more than just trying to pay salaries of people. All right? Instead, every week when we pass the buckets in here, or maybe you give online or however it is that you choose to give, we have the opportunity to imitate the very nature of God through giving. And in turn, it allows us to expand his kingdom. It allows us to do ministry and to bless people and to point people who are far from God back to him. When we ask you to serve in a ministry here at this church, it's more than just trying to fill gaps. It's about providing all of us an opportunity to imitate God through being generous with the talents and abilities and, off, and the giftings that he's given us. I mean, all of us have been gifted in some way. If you know Christ is your Savior, you've been gifted in some way for the sake of building up and investing and encouraging other people. When we encourage you to get into a group here at Westridge, get into a small group, whatever that looks like, right? It's more than us just trying to get you to meet people and trying to expand groups and all this and that. It's about us wanting to give you an opportunity to reflect the generosity of God by giving your time to invest in other people, to invest in people inside and outside of this church for the purpose of helping each other to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. When we talk about getting on mission in this church, going to places like Burkina Faso, Africa, and Havana, Cuba, and places like Guatemala, and Nicaragua, and even Baltimore, or even downtown Atlanta, it's about giving you an opportunity to share how generous God has been with you and how loving our God is by generously offering generously offering hope to us and to the rest of the world through his son Jesus Christ. So we have to understand this, that we are never more like Jesus than when we are giving generously to others of who we are and what we have. So with all of that foundation being laid, with all of that being said, we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at this amazing story in John chapter 4, okay? Because Jesus gives us an amazing example of what it looks like to imitate God, all right, Basically, to, by being generous with our time for the sake of other people. And we're going to look at the story of the woman at the well. Now, in the beginning of John chapter 4, we find Jesus and his disciples, and they're traveling from Judea to Galilee. Now, on the road from Judea to Galilee is a city called Samaria. And in verse 4, we see that Jesus decides, and this is important, okay, he decides that he needs to go through Samaria on their trip. Now, when you read that, if you don't know any history about the Bible or you don't know what's going on here at first glance, you're like, that's what, there's no big deal. That's just Jesus wants to go through Samaria. Okay, well, and you also know, if you look at a straight line from Judea to Galilee, you've got to go through Samaria because it's the shortest route. However, what makes this so interesting is that during this time in history, when Jewish people traveled between the cities of Judea and Galilee, those regions... All right? They would oftentimes take a longer route. They didn't have a 285 loop or anything like that, but they created one. They would go off the path. They would go off the road to avoid the Samaritans because the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. The Samaritans were a mixed breed of people. 
They were part Jew, part Gentile, and so they were despised by Jews and non-Jews alike. Matter of fact, if a Jew saw a Samaritan walking towards them, oftentimes they would either turn and go the other way or they would go to the other side of the road to avoid them. Because they believed that if they came in contact with one of these people, they would be defiled. And so you had all kinds of reasons behind this, this dislike, this hatred towards each other. Some of it was cultural, some of it was racial, some of it was, was simply religious. And so Jesus needing to go through Samaria on this trip points to something very significant. Jesus had a divine appointment that he needed to attend to. There was a distinct purpose for his needing to go through Samaria. So let's start reading together in verse 5, and and we'll see what this appointment was all about. Verse 5, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Now, again, there's there's a few key things that we need to note from this passage. Jesus stops at this well. The Bible says it's about the sixth hour, which means it's 12 12 noon, okay, noonish. And about the same time he gets there, there's a Samaritan woman, and she shows up to the well to draw water, and she's by herself. Now, this whole scene is not normal, because usually all the women, okay, when they would come to get water, they would usually come in a group, they would usually come early, either early in the morning or later in the afternoon, but here this woman is all alone. Now, why is she all alone? Well, as we're going to see in a moment, she was considered a social outcast. She was a woman that had many, many husbands, and now here she's living, she's living with a man who is not her husband. And because of that, the people of Samaria look down upon her, and they have nothing to do with her. So this lady walks up to Jesus, and Jesus starts talking to her. Now, this had to be really odd for her, because Jewish men weren't supposed to be talking to not only women in public, but also talking to a Samaritan woman. He's talking to this woman. And and, and also remember this. Jesus was considered a rabbi. And rabbis were not supposed to have any contact with anyone or anything that would have been considered sinful. And this woman was, again, she was considered a sinful, promiscuous woman. But what we see is we see Jesus putting aside all of the social, all the cultural, all the uh, racial issues, even religious barriers, to engage this woman who was far from God so that her sins could be forgiven. This woman had tremendous needs, like every one of us in this room. And Jesus knew he needed to go through Samaria. And so Jesus starts talking to her in such a way to help help her understand that he was the Savior of the world. He wanted her to know, you're, you're sitting next to the Messiah. He wanted her to know that he was the only one that could forgive her of all of her sins if she would just simply put her faith and trust in him alone. Now, remember, She's asked Jesus an important question. She said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Now pick up in verse 10, and Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here again to draw water. And in the Old Testament, there are 350 prophecies concerning the Messiah. Over 350 times in the Old Testament, the writers of the Old Testament give us very specific, very detailed information about the Savior that God has promised to send into the world to provide forgiveness and atonement of sin, including eternal life. And one of the metaphors that is used in the Old Testament when it speaks of the Messiah is living water. We see this in Jeremiah 2, we see it in in Zechariah 14, we see it in Ezekiel 47. So when Jesus is speaking to this lady, when he's talking to the woman at the well, he uses water. And what is she she doing there? She's gathering water. He uses water in an attempt to get her to understand that he is the living water that the scriptures speak of. He's the one that the Old Testament writers were writing about. He is the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world who has come to forgive her of her sins. The problem is she's missing the point. She's not getting it. So Jesus takes a different approach. He he decides, I'm going to go straight forward here. Straightforward approach, and look what he says here in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. In other other words, she's living with a man. What you have said is true. Now, what did Jesus just do here? He went straight for her sin. He went right to her sin. He pointed out her spiritual condition. Now, we're not going to read this, all right? But this woman and Jesus, they go on, and they have this very interesting conversation about worship. Which leads this woman to finally ask Jesus the question, you know, I I know the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll be able to tell us all things. He'll be able to answer all of our questions, right? And Jesus looks at this hopeless, helpless, sinful woman and he lovingly says to her, look, listen, he says, I want you to know I'm him. I'm the one that you're speaking of. I'm the Messiah the world has been waiting for. Now, what happens next is awesome. It's just awesome. This lady, she leaves her water jars. She runs back into the village, runs back into the town, and she starts telling people about Jesus. And she's not not just telling people about Jesus. She is gathering people. She is bringing people back to the well because Jesus is at the well, and she wants people to meet him, to have an encounter with the living water. Now, the scriptures tell us that while this is going on, the disciples come back. They've been to Walmart, all right? They've been on a little shopping excursion, all right? They have food with them, and now they're trying to get Jesus to eat. Remember the Bible said that Jesus was weary from his journey. But Jesus doesn't want to eat anything, and these guys are concerned about his physical, they're, they're concerned about his physical well-being. Now, at this, this point, Jesus takes advantage of a teachable moment. He teaches them a lesson that speaks beautifully into this idea of being generous with our time for the sake of other people. He uses an illustration about the harvest. And so I want you to picture this with me, if you will. Jesus has got his disciples with him, all right? And he's standing by a field full of crops, all right? And the crops that Jesus 
he's referring to here are apparently sprouting, apparently they're blooming, they're looking healthy, and Jesus is pointing to these crops, and he's saying, look at them. Look at these crops. They're white unto harvest. They're just waiting for someone to come and to gather them up for the harvest. Now, I want you to imagine Jesus directing his attention, the attention of his disciples, all right, from the field to the people of Samaria who are now approaching him. They're approaching him because of what the woman has told them about Jesus. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, see these people? These are the crops that I was just referring to. These are the folks. They're ready. In a spiritual sense, they've been waiting for someone to gather them up and to share with them the good news that God loves them and that he wants to offer them salvation. These people are ripe for good news. And Jesus says, guys... That's why we're here. That's not just, not just the why we're here in Samaria, but that's why, that's why I'm here. We came to Samaria not to get water or to gather food. We came here to invest in people, to invest in these people. Now, if you look forward into the scriptures, you find out that Jesus and his disciples, they actually stayed in Samaria for an extra two days. And the Bible tells us that many, many more people believed in Jesus and they received forgiveness of their sins and they received eternal life. Folks, this is a picture of what it looks like for us to move from bare minimum living to be generous with our time for the sake of others. Now, before we leave this morning, I want to point out a few things that we need to understand from this passage. All right, first of all, if we are going to be generous with our time towards other people, first of all, we have to tear down some walls. Now, Jesus in this story, he tore down several walls. He tore down racial walls, he tore down religious walls, and he tore down relational walls. Racial walls, relation, and we have to do the very same thing. I want to tell you, and you know this to be true, that this area that we live in, northwest Atlanta, is for generation after generation in our past history, has been plagued by racial issues. And we, we have an election coming up, and when you, hear, you hear racial things constantly. I want to tell you something. If racial walls in this country are going to come down, it has to begin in the church. And I say it begins here. We have to look beyond our skin color. We have to look beyond our backgrounds. We have to look beyond where we come from. And we have to love people with the love of Jesus Christ. We have to see people as equal in God, as God does. We also, have to, we also have to tear down some relational walls. And some of you, you have issues with your neighbors, you have issues with your friends, you have issues with, 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 with people in your family. And these are people that desperately need Jesus Christ. We have to look beyond county lines. I remember when we moved here, people told me, listen, people will never come, to, people in Cobb, Douglas, and they will never come to church in Paulding County. And God, in his sense of humor, actually planted this church in West Cobb and then moved us into Paulding County. And here we are, this church that's become a regional church with many, many counties represented. And now we have a, another location up in Cartersville in Bartow, and they're working through the very same issues of getting beyond, getting beyond boundary lines. We, we draw boundary lines in our mind and go, we're not going to go over there because we don't live there. Those people like, and we talk about people based upon counties and where they live and what part of the, it, it's, we got to get, we got to tear those walls down. And we got to tear down religious walls. 
And we've got to focus on Jesus Christ. We've got to focus on, the, let John 3.16 be the thing that brings us together. We've got to get beyond the Baptist label and the Presbyterian labels and the Assembly of God labels. And I'm not talking about embracing cults. I'm not talking about embracing people that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone and working alongside it. We've already started a lot of this stuff through Hope for Christmas and Community Makeover. But we've got to, we've got to continue to break down and tear down the racial and the relational and the religious walls that exist in our community. And trust me, they're here. And then we have to slow down. I'm going to nail some of you right now. We have to slow down. We have to slow down long enough to notice people who need Jesus. We have to notice them for who they are. We have to notice, we have to see them like Jesus sees them. Jesus needed to go through Samaria. He needed, he just took a moment. He sat down by a well on his way to Galilee. I mean, listen, I'm going to tell you something. I, I'm, I'm convicted by this myself because I, 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 I feel like I'm just moving at mock speed all the time. But we, are, we live around people who are in desperate need of forgiveness and eternal life. And it's no secret that we live in a culture of business, uh, busyness. There, there are probably many of us in this room that have fallen into this trap that believing that somehow that busyness equals success in life or that business or busyness equals greater productivity in life. But listen, that's not true when it comes to relationships. As followers of Jesus Christ, we can't hurry past people all the time. We, be, we can't be so consumed and busy with our schedules and our agendas that we have no time left to give to other people. People that God has put in our paths to share Jesus with. I've shared with you over the last few months an acronym, real simple, called BLESS. Just beginning to pray for someone and then listening to them. You know, one of the things that I've realized is that we're just not very good listeners. I was talking with someone the other day, and I'm just, I was, as I was talking to them, I'm realizing they're not listening to me at all. They're just waiting to say the next thing. And, and I, myself, I've had to learn to be a better listener over time. And then we eat with people. Why? Because something about eating and just sitting down together tears walls down. And then we have to serve people. And then we have to get to the place where we can share our story so that they get to a place where they have their own story about how Jesus rescued them and saved their lives. Who are you blessing right now? Who are you praying for? Who are you listening to? Whose life are you in? Who are you eating with? Who are you, share, who are you serving? Who are you sharing your life with? Who are you sharing your story with? And then we have to recognize our need for each other. We need each other. I mean, that's just a fact. And we see in this story that when Jesus stayed in Samaria, he didn't stay alone. He stayed with his disciples. They did the work together. He modeled this for us. They were generous with their time, and they were generous with their relationships with the people of Samaria, but they did it together. Listen, we, learn, we can learn a great lesson from this. I mean, the, the scriptures constantly point us to the truth that we need each other. If we're going to engage a lost world that desperately needs Jesus Christ, we have to do it together. None of us were called to go out in this world by ourselves, to tackle expanding God's kingdom alone. In John 17, Jesus himself, he prayed, listen, he said, I'm praying that the Father and I, as the Father and I are as one, so that the world would believe that God sent him. He wants, he said, I'm praying that we will be as one as well that our relationships with each other, how we treat each other, how we love one another, how we care for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ would make the gospel all more believable to an unbelieving world. I mean, that's why we do small groups in this church. 
so that we can do, not only do life together, we can care for each other, but so that we can be on mission together. And over the next several months and years to come, we're going to be talking about every small group in this church having a mission, being on mission together, almost having a mission statement, tackling something together that gets us to think beyond the walls of our kitchen, the walls of the living rooms that we meet in, and to start thinking around about the people that live around us. All of us, we need to take time to begin to develop relationships with other Christ followers in this church so that we can encourage each other not only to walk in our faith in Christ, but so that we can hold each other accountable to be generous with our time so that we can invest in people who are far from God. Jesus models it for us. I mean, as he took this teachable moment with his disciples and he said, folks, these fields, they're people. Look at these people coming to me. Look at them coming from all over the place. They're ready. That's why we're in Samaria. And that's why God's placed Westridge Church in this area. Because the fields around us are white. Everywhere you look, they're white. And that, it, represents, it represents people. It represents people who desperately need the gospel. They need to know that without Jesus, they're lost. They're dead in their sins. They have no hope of eternal life. Jesus says, it's, it, look around. Harvest time is here. If you're not in a group right now, I'm going to encourage you to take your worship guide out. Fill it out. Say, get me in a group because we're going to go on mission together as groups. If you're not connected with time and you want to begin to invest your time more wisely into people, do the same thing. I want everyone in here to bow your head for a moment. I love this story. I fell in love with it even more so after, you know, this week as, we, as I just looked and looked and looked over and over it again and read it and read it and read it. It came alive in my life and I'm hoping that it came alive in yours as well. Father, with our heads bowed, I sense in this room this morning that there's somebody that's never put their faith and trust in you alone, Lord. You brought them into this room very much like you brought that woman to the well that day to have an encounter with Jesus. There's somebody in this room, Lord, that needed to be here, needed to cross paths with Jesus. And Father, if that person's here this morning, and I, I pray with all of my heart that they will reach out to you right now and that they'll drink from the living water, from the well that never runs dry and that they'll receive eternal life. If you're here this morning, you've never, you've never prayed to receive Jesus as your personal Savior. You've never come to a place where you've cried out to the Lord for forgiveness and repented of your sin. I want to give you that opportunity right now. Just say something like this. Lord Jesus, at this moment, I thank you for making this opportunity available to me, for being so generous, so generous that you gave your very own son to die for me and to give me something that I could never earn on my own, eternal life. And so, Lord, I cry out to you at this very moment. I need a Savior. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. I repent of my sins. I ask for your forgiveness. And, Lord, I ask that you'll fill me with the living water that never runs dry, 
Give me eternal life through Jesus Christ alone. I put every bit of my faith and trust in you alone. And I receive forgiveness and I receive eternal life. If you just prayed that prayer with everybody's eyes still closed and head still bowed, I would ask that you would just right now, just do me a favor, put your, fill out the connection card that we gave you as you came through the, the door this morning. Take it to the Hope Center out in the um, atrium, the Help Center. We want to help you to take your next step. For the rest of us, Lord, may our lives be defined by generosity. May we blow this community away with our love expressed through giving, expressed through generosity, expressed, Lord, just by caring for people who are different than us, people who, Lord, maybe are just deep in sin, who are struggling May we be the church, Lord, that loves the people that no one else loves, that embraces the others that no one else will put their arms around. May that characterize Westridge Church. May that be our heart. May we be generous because you are generous. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.